kindergarten to second grade, you can be dismissed to children's church through the door over here by the piano. And the rest of you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42 is our text today. If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 1028, Luke chapter 10, page 1028. And just a reminder, this Tuesday night is our church's annual business meeting. So if you are a member of the church, we expect you to be there. If you're not a member of the church, you are welcome to come. Uh, But the annual business meeting is where we do our church's business. Uh, We have a congregational government which means that uh, there's no bishop, there's no presbytery, there's no archbishop over our church, but each church is governed by its members. And so in our annual business meeting, we elect our leadership and we uh, set our uh, ministry priorities for the year by approving our budget and things like that. So it's an important time if you're a member of the church, come be a part of the church's life, come be edified. I think you'll be encouraged by uh, hearing what's going on in the life of the church, kind of a way of hearing things uh, that are going on behind the scenes perhaps that you might not know about if you're just here in a worship service. So that's Tuesday night at 7.30. Members expected, non-members welcome. And uh, we'll do our annual meeting together. Well, let's uh, start with a word of prayer, then we'll dig into our text. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Lord Jesus, thank You for that command. Thank You for that truth from the Psalms. That, Lord, what You want from us is for us to delight ourselves in You. To make You, Jesus Christ, the treasure of our hearts. And as we've sung today, Lord, You are worthy to be that treasure. You are worthy to be the one we seek and whom we love. You are the great Creator of all things. You are the one who sustains all things. You govern all things. And, Lord, You save a people for Yourself. And so, Lord, we praise You as our Lord and our Redeemer. Lord, help us to treasure You more. We confess that we don't treasure You enough. We confess that we, this week even, even today, we have delighted in so many things besides You. We have allowed other things to uh, shrink our affections for You, Jesus. And instead, we've had our affections enlarged for things that really uh, don't matter. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that You would give us hearts that are um, sold out for You, Lord, that love You that meditate upon You throughout the week. Lord, thank You for um, Your work in this world. We do pray again for our youth that You would bless them as they go to Jamaica. We pray, Lord, for the Gospel to have uh, power in Jamaica, that people would be saved and come to know You. Lord, we pray for our missionaries that we support around the world. We pray especially this morning for Craig Soderberg, who was with us, our missionary, um, Lord, to Southeast Asia, working among a Muslim people who do not have access to the Gospel, who do not have a church in their language, Lord. Uh, Of the four million of these Muslim people, we know that there perhaps may be 16 believers. And so, Lord, we pray You'd bless His work, that it might uh, make inroads for the Gospel among those people. Lord, that they might hear the good news that Jesus was more than just a prophet, but that He was the Son of God who died and rose again for our sins. Lord Jesus, we uh, pray for churches around the area. Lord, this morning I'm lifting up to You the Nazarene churches. Lord, we pray for Wollaston Church of the Nazarene, South Weymouth Church of the Nazarene, Bethel Nazarene Church, Lord, for the Nazarene Church here in North Hingham. God, we pray that Your Gospel would go out from those churches with power, that those churches would be founded on the Word of God. We pray for Eastern Nazarene College, that You would bless its work and its ministry in preparing people for a life with a biblical grounding. And Lord, we pray for this church, that You would be work in our midst. Lord, make South Shore Baptist Church a holy people. Help us, Lord, to hate sin, 
to love you, to love your word, and to love Jesus, and to love one another. God, we pray that you would uh, be at work among the youth and the children and the junior high students in our church. Lord, may they be raised up uh, so that there might be a godly generation going out from this church. Lord, raise up more workers for your harvest field. We pray, Lord, that you might call some young men and women to go forward into ministry in, in its various forms. And now, Lord, as we come to the Bible, as we come to the story of Mary and Martha here in Luke chapter 10, we pray, Jesus, that you would speak to us. We come to sit at your feet to hear what you would say to us, to be shaped by your word and by your teaching. And so, Jesus, speak to our hearts, we pray. And we ask this on your name. Amen. Luke chapter 10. Yes, we are actually reaching the end of Luke chapter 10. Slowly but surely approaching the middle of the book. And this is the story of Mary and Martha. It's an interesting story. It only occurs here in all the Gospels. It's not in any of the other synoptic Gospels, Matthew or Mark. It's not in John. And it's a story about Jesus visiting these two sisters, Martha and Mary. Uh, They have a brother you may know from the Gospel of John. His name was Lazarus. And they live in Bethany. Uh, Bethany is, you might call it, a suburb of Jerusalem. It's a little village outside of Jerusalem. And it's a story about Jesus visiting them. And people, uh, people know this story because I, I think especially Martha connects with so many of us in different ways. So let me just read the story and then we'll dig into it. Verse 38, As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. You know, we all have our little uh, secret vices. We all have our guilty little pleasures. And I have mine. One of the things I love is I love playing board games. There it is. That's my little secret vice. I, I love board games. I've always had, as a kid, I used to play them all the time. When I was a teenager, when my friends would be out you know, partying, I really wasn't into that scene. And so I would be up late at night with my really cool board game friends, um, you know, chugging Mountain Dew and playing Risk or Axis and Allies or some game like that. Um, and I still love it today. I like board games uh, because well, I'm very competitive by nature. And, you know, as a pastor, you can't really be competitive. So I have to, like, have an outlet for that. So, you know, when I play board games, I can have world domination and then come and be really nice to you. Um, <laughs> I, I like the strategic thinking involved. I find that interesting. Uh, I like the socializing. I think there's something about a, just a simple board game, especially when you get adults together and, and laughing and having fun as adults. I think when adults play together and do something fun, you learn things about each other that you might not learn if you were you know, at a soiree or you were talking to each other across the cubicle. It's just you know, something comes out of people and you really learn a lot about people. I like the fact that kids and adults can play together. Um, so anyway, every once in a while I, I get the bug and I order some new board game, much to my wife's chagrin. And uh, the first thing I do when I open it up is I take out the rules. 
and I run off somewhere by myself and I start reading through the rules. And for me, the thicker the rule book, the better. And the more details, the better. And you know, if you've ever looked at a board game rule book, uh, the first thing in the rule book, no matter what game it is, there's always the very first thing it tells you. The object of the game. Always right there, somewhere near the beginning. So uh, here's this little rule book from Monopoly. I mean, this is kind of a lightweight game. Look how small this thing is. And it starts out this way, though. Monopoly, you've played it. The object of the game is to become the wealthiest player through buying, renting, and selling property. So it's a very Christian game, you know, trying to become the wealthiest player. Um, trying to bankrupt everyone else. It's a very edifying game. So, so you read the, you know, the opening sort of ob- objective, and that's important because then you unfold the rest of the rules. And there's all of these rules about how to move the pieces and how to roll the dice and you know, when to go to jail and how to get out of jail. And it's important to know the object of the game because as you get involved in the game mechanics, no matter what game it is and all the rules, if you forget the object of the game, you can become quickly confused. And, you know, what do I do there? And when is that turn? And, you know, and how do the cards work? So you've got to keep coming back to what's the goal in all this? It's to destroy the other players financially. Okay, I got the goal. So now I can use the rules to achieve that end. Uh, if you're teaching a new game to somebody, I often find that the new person will eventually get confused. And they'll be like, what is this again? Do I do this? Do I do that? And usually you explain to them. You go, okay, okay, remember, the object of the game is blah, 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 blah. And they'll go, Right. Oh, okay. Now I know what to do. Once they remember what the point of the game is. Um, and you know, life's like this. See, I'm developing a whole philosophy out of board games here. My own kind of game theory. So, you know, but life is like this. You know, life, you need to know the object of the game. You need to know the objective. Um, there was this book that came out a couple of years ago, uh, Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. Sold over 20 million copies. I mean, you know, books by pastors don't sell over 20 million copies and sit on the New York Times bestseller list for month after month. And you know, what was it about this book that touched so many people? What was it that even crossed religious lines? And I think part of it is that title, The Purpose Driven Life. This idea that, you know, what is my life about anyway? And I think people just kind of latched onto that. Uh, because as Americans, you know, we're very busy in the game of life. We're rolling the dice, we're moving the pieces, and we're playing banker. And we're involved in this, and we're busy with that, and we're all stressed out. But it's kind of like we're so busy, but no one really knows why or what the object of the game is. We're just kind of playing the game as fast as we can. But it's like, why are we doing this? What is it that we're doing, and for what purpose? And so you put a book out there that says this is the purpose, you know, a book about the object of the game, and people kind of go, oh, I need that. Whatever that is, I need to look into that. And so I think it's part of its success. And I really think that's what today's story is about. I think the story of Mary and Martha is about priorities. It's about understanding the point of life and of the Christian life and sticking to that and not getting distracted by other things. Uh, I I think Mary and Martha, in a sense, are two uh, models for us. They're two people. Two modes of living are exemplified by these two ladies. In one mode is a person who understands the object of the game and is commended for it. And the other is a person who, like me, so often gets distracted by the details and forgets the purpose of it all. And so, uh, let's look at the story. Verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, 
he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Or literally says in Greek, listening to his word. Listening to the word of Christ. And that's it. That's all we know about Mary. Not even a whole verse, just half a verse is given to Mary. Here she is, here's Jesus, he's in the house, he's teaching, and she's sitting at his feet. And yet I think in that little half of verse, there's a picture for us. There's an image of the object of the game. She is a picture of true discipleship. She is focused on Jesus, which is the object of the game, which is to know Christ, to hear his word, and then to do it. And in that little half of verse, that phrase, I think Luke is putting her forward, as we'll see later on in the story, as the one who somehow gets it right. Now, notice that she's sitting at Jesus' feet, which we kind of go, okay, big deal, she's on the floor. You know, what's that about? I mean, was there a furniture shortage? Is that the point? All these disciples come in the house and, you know, they give them all the chairs and Mary's got no place to sit, so she sits on the floor. And that's not it. I think there's more to it than simply where she's sitting. In other words, the, the phrase sitting at someone's feet in that time would be code language for identifying yourself as a disciple of a particular rabbi. So the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts says, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Uh, Gamaliel, we know from history, is, was a famous uh, Jewish rabbi. So what Paul is saying was, I was a disciple. I put myself under the teachings of Gamaliel. You know, in general, in the Bible, to be at someone's feet is to be in a position of submittedness to them. So, uh, you know, it says in the Bible, God says, the, earth is, the heavens are my throne, the earth is my footstool. So it means that you know, the earth is under the authority of God. Uh, or in biblical times, if you conquered an enemy, you, you'd be spoken of as trampling them under your feet. It was a way of showing that you uh, conquered them in, in a battle. So to sit at someone's feet as a disciple meant that you surrendered yourself to the teachings of a particular rabbi. So here we have Mary. And she's sitting at the feet of Christ, like a baby bird, you know, in the nest, sitting beneath the mother, waiting to be fed, or like a college student who's in the classroom with, you know, his favorite professor. He loves this, and whenever this professor speaks, the notebook comes out, so does the pencil, and, you know, you're writing notes as furiously as you can, because everything they say just seems to make sense. Or like a bunch of lacrosse players, they're sitting on the grass, uh, and over them is this famous coach, and he's instructing them and he's teaching them, and they're you know listening, they're learning about the game. So in the same way, uh, Mary is identifying herself as a disciple, and she th- this was a big thing that she was doing. I mean, first of all, in those days, uh, women were not allowed to sit at the feet of rabbis. It's just a cultural thing. So she's crossing major cultural lines to do this. Not only that, but as a woman, she would be expected to be part of the hospitality. And we'll get into that in a few minutes. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way, like, you know, women stay in the kitchen. I mean, please understand, hospitality in those days was a huge deal. It was a major social virtue. But somehow she was leaving the hospitality. She was crossing the gender boundary lines in that culture to sit at the feet of a rabbi. And so really, you know, why are you doing this, Mary? What's going on? Because she understands the object of the game, in a sense, which is to sit at the feet of Christ, to hear His Word, to surrender our lives to His Lordship and say, I'm not in charge, you're in charge, I'm going to do what you say. And, and really, I think this is another way of talking about the same thing, is that this story is about the Lordship of Jesus. 
discipleship is simply the flip side of lordship. So if Jesus is Lord, the way I respond is through discipleship. If He is the Lord, then I sit at His feet and I hear His Word and I put it into practice. That's what it means to be a disciple, is to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. Uh, One might argue, in fact, that this is a story as much about Jesus as it is about Mary and Martha. Notice uh, three times in this story, Jesus is called Lord. Look back at verse 39. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet. Verse 40. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care? Verse 41, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. So in a few short verses, Jesus is called Lord three times. And you know, one of the basic principles of Bible interpretation when you're reading the Bible is that if you see a word or a phrase repeated several times in a literary unit, that's usually a key that that's the main point of the passage. So here we have the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. So really this is about the Lordship of Jesus. If He's the Lord of our lives, if He truly is the Lord, then we sit at His feet. And I don't know what you think of when you think of Christianity. I don't know what kind of images come to your mind. But I guess I would suggest this to you as a beautiful image of what the Christian life is really about. It's, the, it's this kind of intimate uh, communion with Christ where we know Him and love Him and we Surrender our lives to Him. The object of the game is to know Christ and to do His will. It's kind of what we're doing here, isn't it? I mean, I think of church. One way to understand church is we gather together every Sunday as a body to sit at the feet of Christ. Uh, You're not sitting at my feet. We all are sitting at Christ's feet through His Word. And as Christ's Word is taught, whether it's me teaching it or Mark Jennings or Seth Rogers, you know, the, who's teaching it doesn't matter. What matters is that His Word is being taught. I mean, last Sunday, wasn't that a great sermon? Oh, I was so convicted by that. I was challenged all week by that message from Mark. But the reason I was challenged is because he was preaching faithfully from God's Word. And as God's Word goes out, we sit at the feet of Christ and it challenges us and it It uh, comforts us as Christ ministers to His church. And by the way, if I could just kind of go off on a tangent a little bit, I think this is one of the reasons why local churches must be zealously committed to expository preaching. Expository preaching. And what I mean by that phrase, expository preaching, that's a sermon where the point of the passage we're studying is the point of the sermon. Where what the preacher is trying to say is kind of like, Look what it says, and let's do what it says. That's expository preaching. And unfortunately, it's kind of waning in evangelical circles. Uh, some, you know, in, in some cases, different parts of the Bible are left out. We want to talk about that. That might offend people. That might turn people off. Instead of just saying, this is what it says, and us hearing the Word of Christ. Uh, sometimes, uh, expository preaching is being substituted for other things. Uh, there are movements within preaching to be more relevant and to be more exciting. And so the pastors in some churches will say, well, you know, let me just stop preaching for a while and let's watch a video clip from this movie and see what you think. And they'll show a video clip uh, or a, a drama or a special music. And then, you know, so and I think this is just dangerous. I think whenever expository preaching of God's word recedes, what we're really doing is taking away the authority of Christ's lordship over his local church. Because how does Christ lead his church? How does the Spirit flow? It's through the Word. The Word and the Spirit always go together. And so, I, you know, if you're ever out looking for a new church sometime in your life, 
and you move somewhere maybe and you've got to find a new church. Let me tell you, number one on the list, expository preaching. I don't care what programs they have. I don't care how cool the church is. If the Word of God isn't being taught and you don't go away having heard from the Word of God, you know, run. <laughs> and leave the fancy church without the expository preaching and go to the little dinky no place church that does have expository preaching and go where you can find the Word of God taught for the sake of your own souls. Because it's through the Word of God that Christ teaches. But it's not just Sunday morning. We gather in small group Bible studies. Uh, We gather as families. Hopefully if you have kids, there's some time during the week when you kind of sit with your kids and do some form of family worship. This is very hard, but we just have to keep at it. Just relentlessly keep at it. And individually, we need to be people who... You know, maybe it's five minutes during your lunch break. That's when you can find time just to sit down with the Word of God and open it up and read a little bit, wherever. But to spend time individually sitting at the feet of Christ. And as we do that, and we hear the Word of Christ, we're living the life of true disciples. But it's not just hearing it. I want to make this clear. It's not just about Bible study and private knowledge. It's then about doing it. That's another theme in Luke that we've seen, right? That you haven't really heard it till you've done it. That it's not simply to have the seed of the Word of God, but it's got to fall into the fertile soil and produce fruit. So it's not just about filling my head with Bible knowledge. If I'm not living any of that Bible knowledge out, then I really haven't learned anything. And so it's, it's living under the authority of Christ. So really, I think sitting at Jesus' feet is not just an action. It's a, a mode of existence. It's a way of living whether we're sitting still in a sermon, listening to a sermon, or whether we're out doing things in the world. Uh, Maybe you've heard of Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence was a Carmelite monk in the 17th century, and he uh, wrote a little book called The Practice of the Presence of God. Actually, he didn't really write it. It was conversations that were recorded by him. But he was this monk, right? And, you know, monks, they, they pray and they worship, and they're kind of in their cloister doing their thing. Uh, but you, they usually had jobs in the monastery too. And uh, Brother Lawrence's job was he was the dishwasher. So, you know, after the worship prayer times, he would go in the kitchen and he's scrubbing pots and pans. And the struggle he was having was that there's this disconnect between the sacred, sublime moments of worship with the other monks in prayer. And then he'd go from there and he's, you know, grinding away at a very menial sort of job. And so what he tried to figure out was how to connect the two so that no matter where he was, he was aware of the presence of God and was in sort of a place of discipleship and worship. Uh, you, you know, so for us, whether you're in the social studies class or whether you're across the table closing a big deal or whether um, you're dealing with cranky kids who just would not nap that day or whether you're you know, trying to fix your car and it's just not working, whatever it is that you're doing, we do it with a sense of Christ's lordship over our lives. We do it with a sense of his presence in our lives and being aware of that. And that's what that book's about. It's just how Brother Lawrence learned to be in the presence of Christ, so to speak, to be sitting at the feet of Jesus, so to speak, all the time and how to keep that mode of existence. That, my friends, is the object of the game. That is the point of the Christian life, to know Christ and to serve him no matter where we are and what we're doing. And then there's Martha. Ah, yes, Martha. This is the one I seem to identify with more. I don't know about you. I think most people read this story and they, you know, the thing I hear from people is, I'm Martha. I'm a Martha. We all are, I guess. Um, 
Martha, let's just read her story, verse 40. Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. So she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So I think what Luke is doing here is he's contrasting Mary, who seems to have a grasp on the essence of discipleship, with Martha, who has become distracted. In other words, I think this is a story about priorities. The priority of Christ in His Lordship versus other things that keep us from focusing on Christ. I mean, Jesus is right there. Jesus is in the house. <laughs> but she's in the kitchen, you know, cleaning and getting food ready and the microwave's going off. She's trying to start coffee, you know, and all the things she's doing. And, you know, she's looking over her shoulder and there's her sister. So you got all these probably weird family dynamics taking place. You know, who knows what, what the issues are. Um, first child, second child, who knows. But, you know, she's looking over her shoulder and, oh, and she's cooking more and, oh, I can't believe this. And finally, it just builds and builds and builds and then she just explodes. Jesus, you know, Lord, you know, why don't you tell her to help me? And so, and it just all comes out. And what was the problem with Martha? So there's obviously a contrast here between Mary and Martha. What is the point of the contrast? And I think that this passage is often misinterpreted and misexplained in some ways, at least the times I've heard it. And it's, the misinterpretation kind of goes like this. Mary exemplifies being a contemplative, and Martha exemplifies being an activist. Mary is honored because she didn't do anything, she just sat still with Jesus, and Martha is challenged because she's busy and she's doing things. And so sometimes people take away from this story, I need to not do things, and I need to sit and pray more and be silent. Which may be true. <laughs> we may need to do less things and sit more and be silent and pray. We probably all do. But what I'm saying is, I don't think that's the point of comparison that Jesus is making. That's all I'm saying. Even though it may be true that we need to do that. I mean, certainly we all need to pray more. But I don't think Jesus is saying, you know, the prayer ministry is good, the coffee ministry is bad. That being a monk is the ultimate and being a doer is really worldly. I don't think that's the point of the contrast. Uh, I mean, think about Jesus. Was Jesus a contemplative or was Jesus an activist? I mean, both. To the max, right? He was a contemplative. He went and he, uh, he was praying. He would go out in the wilderness and pray all night to his father. I don't know, when's the last time you ever prayed all night? When I've gotten really worked up about something, I've prayed for an hour. And I'll go out for an, a walk and I'll just get off my chest in prayer. I've never in my life, I have to say, maybe this is bad, I've never stayed up all night praying. I've stayed up all night studying. I've stayed up all night watching movies and playing board games. But I've never stayed up all night praying. So even Jesus is a contemplative. This guy gets away with the Lord and does some real communing with God. But he's also an activist. He's busy. He's always working. He's out there healing people and preaching. And sometimes he goes on and on and on with his ministry. And the disciples are like, hey, look, Jesus, this is great. I'm so thankful you're helping people. It's late. People need to get food. Can we just knock it off? And Jesus is still going and going. So I don't think the contrast is between activism and contemplative uh, spirituality. Both are part of 
faithful Christian living. We see them. Jesus tells his disciples to pray. He teaches them how to pray. We'll see that next week. But he also sends them out on a mission trip, sending out the 72. So it's both. We're to do both. So the point of this story is not that contrast between passivity and activity. I think the point of the story is about priorities. That Martha went wrong because she became distracted from the point of the game. Or to put it another way, uh, we often talk about life simplification. How do you simplify your life? And I don't think it necessarily means doing fewer things. I think it means doing the things God wants us to do. That's a simplified life. In fact, you think of church history. Men and women who have done great things for God, they were very busy people. Read this biography of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the 19th century Baptist preacher. I mean, I just get exhausted reading the things he did let alone imagining a human being actually doing all those things. And yet he was also very close to God. So it's not about just kind of sitting around doing nothing. It's about living under the lordship of Jesus and allowing his lordship to guide and empower whatever it is we do. And Martha had lost sight of that. Uh, Again, look at the verse. Look at verse uh, 40. But Martha was distracted about priorities, by all the preparations that had to be made. Verse 41, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. She forgot about the one thing, the point, the purpose of it all. And isn't it interesting that that what Martha was distracted by was hospitality? Didn't you find that interesting? You know, it's not like Martha was off in the corner doing drugs. Martha wasn't off robbing banks. Uh, Martha wasn't off beating up people. <laughs> Just hospitality. Isn't that good? I mean, shouldn't we be hospitable? In fact, it was one of the cardinal virtues of that culture. To be a hospitable person was very much venerated and honored. So from a cultural perspective, she was doing something really good. You, if you were to look at the two women and say, who was really obeying God, you might be tempted to say Martha because she's being hospitable. That's what I think is so interesting in this story. Martha was doing something really good. And yet, it had somehow become uncoupled from the Lordship of Jesus. So that the good thing she was doing was not flowing out of the Lordship of Christ in her life and and was not flowing out of this kind of relationship with Christ, but it was just her doing this. And who knows what was motivating her? Maybe it was just a sense of social obligation. Maybe it was a sense of pride. Well, Jesus has come to my house and he's going to get a good meal. Tell you what, you know, people aren't going to tell me that I'm a bad hostess. And You know, who knows what? But something was driving her in such a way that the, the good deed was being done for bad motives or for bad ends. And it had, the good thing had become bent, which can so easily happen. We can be doing the wrong thing, for all, the right thing for all the wrong reasons. In a sense, Martha forgot the point of the game. Martha got so involved, rolling the dice, moving the pieces, spinning the spinner, playing the cards, and it's like, Martha... What are you doing? Remember the point of the game is Jesus? And he's like, right there? He's right there. And so she somehow forgot that. I somehow so easily forget that. And notice what happens when she became distracted by other things and forgot the whole point. The first thing she does, two things that happen. First of all, she becomes demanding toward Jesus. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. It's an interesting thing to say. The first part of the verse, Lord, really doesn't fit with the last part, does it? Tell her to help me. Like, 
who's the Lord here? <laughs> Lord, you who are the Lord, tell her to do this. Like, who's giving the orders here? But that happens when we forget about Christ. It happens when we get lost and distracted uh, from Christ, is that we get busy doing all these things, and then we get kind of a sense of self-righteousness. Like, God, I'm doing this, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing this, so therefore, you better do that. And why didn't you do that, God? Because I was doing all these other things. It's like, that's not how it works. God doesn't work in quid pro quo relationships. (laughs) He's the Lord. We sit at His feet. He doesn't sit at our feet. But not only does this become sort of bossy and pushy with the Lord demanding with him, she also becomes disparaging toward her sister. She demeans her sister's simple focus on Christ. She's not helping me. Tell her to help me. Tell her to stop doing that. I'm sick of her doing that. Tell her to get in where she should be, which is in the kitchen, helping me. And so she disparages her sister. Uh, you know, and, and when we get caught up in doing especially good things for the wrong reasons, we become self-righteous. And we look down at other people who aren't doing all the things that we're doing. Uh, So, this is the interesting thing. Here's Jesus. He's the Lord. And true discipleship is serving the Lord and also loving our neighbor. So, so here's the Lord. Here's our neighbor. Like we learned last week, we put ourselves under him. But Martha had put herself above her sister and she even put herself above Jesus. So, it was all messed up. (laughs) And she's forgotten the point, which is to love God and love your neighbor. That's the essence of the game, is to love Christ. Somehow that was lost on her. She became distracted by many things. So what is it that is distracting you today from following the Lordship of Christ? What is it? Maybe you're like, I know exactly what it is. And you can just name it. You can write it down on a piece of paper. Maybe it's a sin. Maybe it's something that's bad. Maybe it's something good but it's somehow taken on this kind of weird thing that happened to Martha, the same kind of dynamic. Um, maybe you're like me, and sometimes I don't even know what it is. I just know that it's been like a week or two weeks or something since I've really felt connected and submitted to the Lordship of Christ. And I don't know really when it happened, but I just that's where I'm at. But whatever it is, it could be the best thing in the world, but if it's not done out of abiding in Christ's life, then it's the wrong thing or it's being done in the wrong way. What is it that's keeping you up at night? What did you wake up at 3 in the morning this week about? Freaking out about? Find out what that thing is and surrender it to Christ. This is a daily task. To live at the feet of Jesus. To practice the presence of God. But the good thing is the tenderness of our Lord. Look at verse 41. Hear the tenderness in these words. Martha, Martha. You're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. You know what's interesting there? This is a bad English translation, I think, because it literally says in Greek, Mary has chosen the better portion. That's what it says in Greek. So uh, I think there's a wordplay going on. You see the irony? Martha's in the kitchen whooping up a portion. She's whooping up a meal that she's going to bring to Jesus because she wants to you know, be the good hostess. And Jesus is like, look, she already chose the better portion, but it's the portion that I can give you. I'm the true host. I have the true bread. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
And so Jesus is the one who has the good portion and Mary's got it and Martha's missing it because she thinks she has to serve Jesus. And so in a way, you could say that these two women also are models for us of the wrong way and the right way to approach God. One is religion. The other is the Gospel. Religion, this is how I define religion, is human efforts to achieve a just standing with God. I'm doing the right things. I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And I'm going to church and I'm trying to get everything right. And here's my resume of all the things I'm doing to make myself acceptable to God. And, and you know, even though we wouldn't maybe say this outright, that's kind of the dynamic behind the scenes. And I'm trying to prove myself to God. And I did this, I look at my hospitality and blah, 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 blah. Therefore, God, you need to do this. You need to accept me. And my concern is, as, as a pastor, is that there's probably some of us here who think we are Christians, who think we are right with God because of our religious resume. And I'm telling you, the Bible is so clear that we are not saved by our works. That's religion. And I think a lot of people are into religion. But Mary, in a sense, exemplifies the Gospel. And the Gospel is when we come to Jesus and just sit at His feet And not that we bring things to Him, but we receive from Him salvation. That He gives us His portion. You see, we're empty. We're sinners. We can't save ourselves. We can't do anything to make ourselves right with God. There's no amount of good works and religion and sacraments that you can do to kind of build a tower of good work boxes and then from there jump up into heaven. It's not how it works. It's by God's grace that we are saved. All we do is we sit at the feet of Christ and we receive His forgiveness. Salvation is by faith alone, in Jesus alone. That's how we are saved. And it's not only how we are saved, it's how we live the Christian life. I think that this is an ongoing dynamic in the Christian life, that the Christian life is not about being a busy body and trying to prove ourselves to God, but it's about sitting at the feet of Christ, receiving His grace, and then going out and doing whatever it is He tells us to do by His power and His grace each day. It's about abiding in Jesus. As Jesus says in John chapter 14, 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we desire to abide in You, to sit at Your feet, even when we're busy with the activities of life, of raising families, of doing work, of going to school, Lord. No matter what we're doing, Lord, we want to be the kind of people who are always at Your feet, living by Your grace and according to Your Word. So, Lord, work that in our hearts, we pray. And I pray, Lord, for anyone here who doesn't know You because perhaps they thought that the way to You is through doing things to to make themselves right. Lord, I pray that they might come to know the joy of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. And so, Lord, help us to be people who not only believe the Gospel, but live it out in the way that we go day to day. We pray all this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.
With our response this morning, would you please turn to number 562? 562, Be Thou My Vision. And this um, beautiful prayer speaks to practicing the presence of the Lord in our lives. Would you stand and let's join our voices together. Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of My Heart. Thank you. 